Flexibility in electricity markets has largely been ensured by the price signals arising from a combination of consumers' needs and suppliers' generation costs. But does this create incentive for investment in new capacity? And does that include renewable capacity? And what does all this have to do with old ladies? In this first episode of Energy Policy Cast, you will learn much more about this. Energy Policy Cast is a new podcast providing you with recent research on energy policy. That includes energy economics, regulation, modeling, and really anything in between. In this first episode, we have the good company of a fellow researcher from DTU Management. His name is Philippe Fausto, and Philippe has done an interesting study on PPAs. PPAs is short for Power Purchase Agreements, and if that subject is a bit foreign to you, rest assured that Philippe will explain much more on this subject in the following. So um, my background is as an economist. I'm originally from Brazil, so I did a bachelor's at the University of Sao Paulo. And then I did my master's in environmental and natural resource economics at the University of Copenhagen here in Denmark. What made you interested in specifically the PPAs? So uh, basically the idea is that we have a, a double challenge or even maybe a triple challenge in the energy market. We're, we're trying to move towards renewable energies to decarbonize our, our energy system. But that means that we have a problem that now supply is more variable. We have more energy when the wind blows or when the sun is shining than when uh, the wind is not blowing or during the night. So we need to make sure that we have uh, a market that is able to provide enough flexibility so that we have enough energy when we need it. And when we don't have a lot of energy, that we can cope with it by either reducing demand or finding another way of producing energy or even putting energy into storage when we have excess and then consuming it when we need it. All right. And perhaps before we go any further, maybe there are some listeners that, that don't know the abbreviation of PPA. So can you just briefly explain what we're actually talking about? Yes, of course. So yeah. PPAs are power purchase agreements. They are bilateral contracts between a seller and a buyer of, of electricity. And uh, they usually specify a fixed price and a fixed quantity over time that will be traded between these two parties. PPAs can be used to both guarantee uh, a reasonable price for consumers. We don't want them to be exposed to very high prices when there is little energy in the system. But we also need to make sure that we design them properly so that the price signals reach the end users and they know when they need to consume more or consume less to be able to maintain system balance at all times. So, so just to recap, so your motivation for this study, as, as I understand it, one is the exposure to, to scarcity prices, that is high prices for the consumers. No one likes high prices, but, but what is the problem with that? Yeah, so there is a huge political cost to exposing consumers to high prices. People get very dissatisfied if they have to pay 2,000 euros per megawatt hour at a given hour. Uh, that seems exorbitant to people, they feel exploited, and they might be very angry at uh, either the government or the energy system, and we really don't want that to happen. Um, but we also don't want to uh, give everyone a flat rate because that would break down the system. So we, we're looking for a compromise here. Mm. So, yeah, imagining the old lady with an electric heater suddenly have 
uh, an electricity bill exploding due to uh, a few hours of, of uh, scarcity pricing. Uh, that's that's basically what you uh, what you want to avoid. Yes. While at the same time providing uh, some kind of flexibility systems to be able to to respond to signals from the market. Exactly. Right. Then um, when we do have uh, this energy only market, and perhaps let's just uh, start by explaining what the energy only market is. Right, of course. So the energy-only market is basically a market where you only trade energy. So you don't trade anything else like power, for example, or derivatives. Uh, it's just about the kilowatts hour of energy that you're consuming. They're being sold by somebody who generates them and bought by somebody who consumes them. That's a simple definition. Thank you. Clear, clear and simple. So um, that, that market has been working in the Nordic countries for, for ages now, or at least a couple of decades. What do you try to solve that the energy-only market is not doing right now? We, uh, we very much see our research as forward-looking. So I would say for now, the, the market has been able to cope with the amounts of renewable energy that we have in the system. But in the future, that might not be the case. And instead of waiting for the system to break down and uh, making our old ladies pay a lot for her, for their electric heating, uh, we want to make sure that we have a system in place so that the transition is as smooth as possible. So the idea is that uh, when you have more variable generation in the system, the prices will follow that and they will vary more widely. So you will have periods of very cheap electricity when there is a lot of wind, and we have already seen this in Denmark a few hours um, last year and the year before, we had 100% or 140 or even 150% of demand being supplied by wind energy in Denmark. So that causes very low prices because there's an abundance of energy. But the opposite may also be true. When we rely on wind a lot and there is not a lot of wind uh, blowing, we don't have a lot of energy and that might cause very high prices. Mm. So we want to insulate people from that. But we also want to make sure that they know that there's very little energy so that they can reduce their consumption or that flexible generators such as hydropower, for example, can ramp up their production. Right. It's an ambiguous relationship to, to price variations. We like them, but we don't like too much of them. Nice Danish pragmatism, I guess <laughs> that, that is. Perhaps we should, uh, before we go further into details, perhaps you can also just briefly explain how uh, PPA would traditionally work, if you, you can talk about such a thing as a traditional PPA. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's very hard to actually know when, uh, how PPAs work because they are private agreements between two private actors, right? So we were thinking of, for example, uh, Vattenfell and uh, Microsoft or, or Google. Mm -hmm. So they don't necessarily make their agreements public and usually they don't. Mm. What we know is about common designs of PPA. So the most common design right now, I would say, is what we call a sleeved PPA where there is a, a fixed amount of energy that is agreed to be traded between a buyer and a seller, but the seller doesn't actually have to generate that amount of energy every period. So there is a third party, which we call the sleever. Uh, it's usually a utility that is responsible to, uh, for making up the difference between the quantity sold by the PPA and um, the quantity actually produced by the seller. And for that, they receive a sleeving fee. Mm. So that design of PPA does a very good job of ensuring prices because there's for the consumer a fixed quantity and a fixed price. For the producer, there is a, a flat rate price for the energy that they produce up until the, the limit of the PPA. Uh, but the, the, the responsibility for the balance falls to a third party, so the utility. So there is a problem in how the incentives are actually reaching the end consumers there. Mm. And that is why we want to tweak the design of the PPAs a little bit. Okay. 
to make the, the, the prices actually transpire into the consumer side as well? Exactly. Uh, all right. To activate as much flexibility as we can in the system. All right. And PPAs, they're not actually a new thing, despite maybe this subject getting thrown around a bit more in Europe uh, by now, but it's been, uh, it's been on the table for, for quite some time, hasn't it? Yes, uh, it's traditionally been signed with uh, thermal plants, mm -hmm. so plants that bend fossil fuels to generate electricity, essentially, for a very, very long time. Uh, but now they are gaining popularity in Europe for renewables because we're actually weaning renewables off of state subsidies. So they need to find another way of ensuring that they face more or less certain prices going forward. And uh, we, we've been seeing a lot of PPAs being signed in Europe. Uh, we just had the first PPA signed in Germany last year between, um, uh, well, actually Mercedes bought 46 megawatts of wind for a, a plant where they're producing electric vehicles. Uh, there are a lot of PPAs uh, going on in, uh, Dan in Denmark and Norway and Sweden. And uh, Spain and Portugal are also starting to sign them, so they're becoming much more popular in Europe now. All right, okay. So, so let's say let's take point of departure, and you said uh, that Mercedes had, had uh, entered a contract. So, pretend I was a large consumer wanting to be green and wanting to engage in a PPA. How how would that typically work? So, um, I think the the search for greenness is uh, more of a concern in the U.S. than in Europe because they have a very mixed generation system. So they have a lot of renewables, but they also have a large share of uh, non-renewable electricity. Mm. And what they do is that they include certificates in the, in the PPA agreement. So if I sign a PPA with a generator of wind energy, for example, they issue certificates saying that the energy that I consume comes from wind. Uh, the PPAs that are signed in Norway, for example, don't have this disposition because nearly all of their energy comes from hydropower. So the concerns that drive buyers and sellers to enter into PPAs vary widely across markets. But greenness is definitely a big driver in, in markets such as the US or Australia. All right. So the difference between subscribing to green electricity, as, as you've been able to do for at least a decade now, I think you can enter into a contract with your utility. They promise that you get some kind of of green electricity in, in, in your plug and, and everything seems to be fine. Perhaps you can explain the difference uh, from a PPA and then, then to this uh, more, uh, I guess you could call it traditional approach to, to uh, getting supplied by, by electricity. Right. Uh, so the first thing that's important to say is that uh, when you enter into uh, either a PPA or this kind of green energy subscription, it doesn't mean that the energy that you get into your plug or from your plug comes from wind or comes from hydropower. It just means that the financial transactions are gonna end up going to those producers. So the amount you pay to your electricity provider, to the utility, uh, will eventually reach the, the producers. But it doesn't mean that there's a physical cable from your home to a wind farm, for example. Mm. And the same is true of a PPA. But what we're trying to do is to provide these uh, producers with relatively certain revenues. And the PPA does that, whereas the subscription does not. Mm. With a subscription, you have a sort of certainty that you're supporting green energy in a way, but you are not providing them certainty in revenues because you're still using the old price mechanism of paying per kilowatt of energy consumed, and there is no extra payment in there, there's no guaranteed price. So you're not actually giving uh, strong incentives for more investment in green energy, whereas with PPAs, you, you could be doing that. So if we... Go into detail with, with your study um, and your design for, for PPAs. How, how would that 
Uh, for instance, uh, differ to a traditional uh, contract for difference, the CFDs, as, as some would know them. Right, so uh, the way a CFD works, a contract for difference, is that uh, you define a strike price, and whenever the, the market price goes above the strike price, uh, the seller pays back the consumer for, uh, for, for the difference of the price. And the same happens when the price goes below. So the, the buyer will pay back the seller uh, the, extra, the extra revenue to make up for the fact that the price was lower than agreed. If that is all there is to it, that is essentially the design that we're proposing. But what happens right now is that contracts for difference are usually load following. So uh, they are very big in the UK, for example, and uh, they are actually tied to the UK government. So you can have access to the design of those contracts. I have had a look into them and they are load following, which means that if I'm consuming below the limit of the contract and I consume a little bit more, I don't have to pay real uh, real time prices for that. I only pay the price that's in the contract. Uh, and that means that the producer, if I consume less, uh, gets a bonus because he doesn't have to uh, provide me with the electricity that I'm not consuming. And me as a consumer, I don't have the incentive to consume less if I'm below the limit of the contract, because even if the price, the real-time price is very high, I'm only facing the price on the contract. So it still has the problem that incentives are not reaching final users at all times. Mm. So what we're proposing is essentially a simpler contract where you always have to, as a seller, provide the amount of energy that you've agreed on the contract. Mm -hmm. If I don't consume it, I as a consumer can essentially sell it on. So I get a bonus for not consuming that amount of energy that is given by the real-time price. So on the margin, I'm always facing the right incentive to consume more or less, which is given by the real-time price. Mm. From the seller's perspective, he's completely insulated from my behavior because if I don't consume the unit, they can provide me uh, the unit if I consume it and get the, the price on the contract. If I don't, they would still provide me the unit, but give me a bonus for not consuming it, and then it's available for them to sell to another consumer. Mm. So they're completely indifferent to my behavior, which is good. You only want to be subject to your own behavior right in the market. Otherwise, you have extra risk in there. And uh, from, from the buyer's perspective, the units that you buy through a PPA are also guaranteed. Uh, if you want to consume them and your counterparty has not been able to produce them, it is their responsibility to buy them on the market. Mm. So from the seller's perspective, they also have an incentive to produce more when prices are high. Otherwise, they will have to face those prices on the market. That's a nice bridge into um, going to the specific actors, the, the buyer and the seller. Um, so, so what's in it for them? Uh, so the idea is that sellers face a lot of uh, variation in their revenues because not only does their quantity vary, but the prices vary widely as well. The PPAs address the problem of price variation. So through a PPA, you're not actually addressing uh, the, the swing in revenues that comes from quantity differences, but we can smooth out the ones that come from price. So we, we offer a fixed price for production and consumption that is in keeping with the agreement. Mm. And that is what ensures that they still have the right incentives. But if you behave in the way that you expect to behave, you face a fixed price. All right. And yeah. that is the advantage for sellers. Mm. And in fact, that's also the advantage for, for buyers. Yeah, so buyers right. versus for the buyers, they have a kind of certainty and, and still face the signals of, of the market. What, exactly. What, so what kind of, uh, what kind of uh, buyers would be able to, to resell their, their consumption, uh, the, 
maybe the unused consumption under under the, the level that that has been agreed with the seller yeah uh everyone that is the the beauty of these ppas the idea is that if i am paying a price for an amount of energy that i'm not consuming i would get a discount on my bill essentially so if i have agreed to buy five kilowatts hour of energy for a certain hour but i only consume three I get a bonus on my bill or a discount for the extra two that I haven't consumed. And this bonus is going to be priced at the real time price of electricity. And that's how the incentives reach me. Mm. What is the incentive for the buyer not to uh, maybe overstate their uh, their desired level of supply in order to gain a lot of discounts on, on their bill? Right. Uh, because you have to pay for those units of, yeah. of energy, right? And if you if you pay for them at the PPA price and you don't consume them at a time when there's a lot of energy in the system, so the price is going to be low, you're actually going to get a bonus that is less than what you paid for the for the energy that you bought through the PPA. So you're actually exposing yourself to more risk if you want to gamble in that way. So that's not a way to get rich, I guess. Only I if you're very good. All right. <laughs> Expressing this value of reliability, how how does it work? Um, who who will get disconnected if if they don't fulfill the agreement, or how how does it work in practice? Can you explain a bit about that? Yes. So the idea is that you don't need to disconnect people if they are facing the right incentives. So if I, as a consumer, have signed a PPA and the prices are very very high at one point, and I can see that. I will reduce my consumption because the the discount that I will get will be so large. So I can actually make money at that one hour mm. by consuming less. Mm. If I am not willing to do that, I will still pay the price that I agreed on the PPA. So we're not actually penalizing people for consuming as long as they keep their consumption down to the level that they have agreed to. But you still give bonuses to the people who are willing to to reduce their consumption to make sure that the system is in balance. Mm. And uh, the idea, as you mentioned, is that the consumers can actually express their their expectations and preferences for reliability through the signature of the PPAs. So if I expect there to be problems with reliability in the future, that means that we will have a lot of periods where there is less energy than we would like to have in the system. Uh, I know that in these periods, the prices will be very high. So I want to make sure I enter into PPAs to protect myself from those prices. And if I expect them to uh, there to be a lot of them, I'm going to be able to pay a little bit more for the PPAs. And on the seller side, that means that they are going to get a little bit more for their energy. And that increases the incentive to invest in more generation capacity. So if you invest in more generation capacity, you would actually lower the amount of times that you expect there to be reliability problems in the future. Mm. So the idea is that the PPA could find an equilibrium between the willingness to invest uh, in more capacity to ensure reliability and the demand that you have for reliability. So instead of creating these uh, situations of imbalance, we can just express our preferences for reliability before they happen and make sure that the system is in balance when we need it to be working properly. Relating uh, to to the trade of, of PPAs, you mentioned in your paper uh, a trading platform. Um, how, how would that work and where, where would that be placed in the system? Our idea is that it should be as easy as buying electricity is today. Um, that means that people can bid how much they are willing to pay for a, for a PPA at a certain quantity, and the sellers can bid how much they're willing to sell the PPAs for. Um, this could be done in different ways, and this is one of the, the things that we haven't answered yet in the paper, and this is an area 
where we would very much like to see uh, research going into what is the best way to design this platform. It could be that the, the, the buyers and the sellers can go onto it themselves and offer their bids. It could be done through utilities that would buy the PPAs and sell them on. Um, the important thing is that people have an outlet to express their preference for how much they want to trade through PPAs and how much they want to pay for it. Perhaps it's, it would be nice to clarify that this study that you've done is not just theory, but you've actually applied it on, on a case of uh, Western Denmark, uh, which is part of a synchronous system uh, for, for uh, Western Europe. Um, and, and you've had some interesting findings in, in doing that. Uh, first of all, how applicable is, is your solution in, in this concrete case of Western Denmark? So we see very interesting results for Western Denmark. Uh, we chose Western Denmark firstly because, well, we are in Denmark. Secondly, there is a lot of data available on generation and consumption for the, for the West of Denmark. And thirdly, because there is a very high share of wind. So if we're targeting future markets where the shares of uh, variable renewable energy are very high, um, the West of Denmark, or DK1 as we call it, uh, is, is a good pilot project. Uh, what we see is that uh, the categories that are exposed to significant price risk, that is flexible generators, so combined heat and power plants, central power plants and consumption, so uh, load or consumers, uh, are exposed to significant price risk. And when uh, we, we calibrate the PPAs to their needs, we are able to reduce the variation in expenditure for demand and in revenues for the producers by up to uh, almost 70%. So it is quite effective in reducing their exposure to swings in price and therefore in expenditure and revenue. Mm -hmm. um, the case is a little bit different for variable renewable producers because most of the volatility in their revenues has to do with the quantity swinging around a lot. So if the wind blows uh, a little bit more, a little bit less, you're going to have more wind energy being produced or less wind energy being produced. And that is going to play a big part in how the revenues of, of wind energy producers vary. Uh, for solar, the case is even more special because it produces zero during the night. Mm -hmm. So we have about half of the time with zero revenues. So it's very hard to reduce that, that uh, volatility just by playing around with prices and how people... Uh, have guaranteed prices or face real-time prices. Uh, but what is interesting is that by stabilizing the revenues and expenditure of demand and flexible producers, we can actually provide an incentive for them to take on some of the risk of variable producers if that is the case in the future. So we don't see PPAs as the ultimate solution to a perfect market, but we see it as a very good first step. If we need to add things onto that as we progress into the future, then very well. Uh, we are very happy to provide a building block on which bigger and better things can be built. So that's that's interesting because the this distinction between the flexible producers and the variable renewables may also have an impact in regarding the incentive to uh, participate in the PPA, I suppose, and and also maybe the long term incentives for for uh, investment and in capacity under a PPA scheme as as you design it. Can you just uh, perhaps recap a bit on, on the distinction between the flexible uh, and the inflexible generators and how they would be in impacted by such a scheme? Right. So firstly, uh, inflexible generators are basically right now solar and wind. Uh, the generation depends on weather conditions, right? Again, the irradiance of the sun and how strongly the wind is blowing. 
flexible generators, on the other hand, are those uh, for which we can control the production a little bit. So if you think of a hydropower plant, we can open um, the, the comports out from the dam into the turbine or close them up. So we can actually control production and match the needs of the system through that. Mm. Um, for, for these controllable producers, since the quantities are controllable, they don't swing around as much and when they do it is in favour of their business case. Uh, so for them, the risk lies in price variations and that is why the PPAs are very interesting for them. Mm. Uh, on the variable producer side, uh, they can't control how much they produce. They are subject to, to different conditions. So they are exposed both to price variation and to quantity variation. But it is also interesting for them to enter into PPAs we have found in our application because um, the swings in quantity actually work against them. When there is a lot of wind in the system, the price tends to go down because there is abundance of energy, right? So if you can face a higher fixed price at that moment, that's actually good for you. Uh, so that is why they would also go for PPAs. Not as much as a proportion of their generation um, as controllable generators, but it is also better for them to go into PPAs as opposed to not even having the opportunity to go into PPAs. Mm. Another question is uh, the in investment incentives for variable renewables. Uh, you stated that there might be some uh, incentives not to invest in unattractive uh, sites for instance, with the low capacity factors for wind. Uh, can you just explain a bit about that? Yeah, so the idea is that um, our goal to keep uh, the, the incentives reaching end users is not only important for operation, it's also important for investment. If you, There are a lot of proposals out there that just want to offer a flat rate, so a fixed price regardless of behavior to renewable energy producers. Uh, this is the case with feed-in tariffs, for example. When we have a system with a lot of renewables, uh, if we're only producing when we already have a lot of energy, uh, we're not actually contributing to the system. But if you offer a, a feed-in tariff, for example, then investments in this kind of technology would still be profitable. With the PPAs, we make sure that if you invest in a wind farm, for example, that only produces when everybody else is already producing, we already have too much energy in the system, you're going to lose money. You can only make money investing in renewables that actually serve the needs of the system. Moving on, uh, away from the study, I'm interested in, in uh, someone else or something else that you would give a shout-out to or credits to. Yeah, so uh, in terms of a shout-out, I'd like to talk about uh, mainly three researchers who have done a lot of work uh, on market design and the design of financial options and, uh, and other instruments to ensure that our energy markets work properly. So they are Peter Crampton, uh, Stephen Stoft and William Hogan. And then if you want to know more about PPAs, I would actually uh, suggest you go on the Norton Rose Fulbright. It's a, a law firm. Uh, their website has a very interesting description of current designs of PPAs, and we can share the link along with the podcast. We will, of course. Thanks a lot. Um, maybe before we sign off, um, this study is currently under review, as I understand. Yes. Um, so this is actually... Uh, in case you listen to it uh, as, as soon as possible, the podcast, you will uh, be the first one to know about it. We will uh, link to the study as soon as it's uh, published. And uh, in case you have any questions uh, to Philippe, I 
would it be okay to to share your contact details as well for interested listeners? Yes, of course. All right, so we'll do that. So thank you, Felipe. That was very interesting, and I'm looking forward to uh, to see your study in action and see how it transforms the European energy system, perhaps. That's the hope. Thank you very much for thank having you. me. Energy Policy Cast is an informal and sometimes geeky way of sharing recent research. If you have any comments, then feel free to get in touch with me. My name is Daniel Sneom, and you can find the contact details in the show notes. Incidentally, I'm also the producer of this podcast, with strong and much appreciated support from the Flex4S project and DTU management.